0: This is the Life Church Podcast. For more messages, to watch our live stream, or to find other events, go to lifechurchnow.org. All right. Good morning, everybody. Everybody doing all right? Good. Wow. Silent crowd today. Yeah. Amen. Well, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited about the series that we're in. And I have to be honest with you. Um, it's a it's a series that uh, I, as I began you know several months ago to start kind of doing some reading and kind of preparing and uh, watching others and that kind of stuff just getting ready for it I um I, I had these I, I had it's the series is called mixed emotions and I had these mixed emotions about actually doing the series you know like do I really want to do this because um, often I can get into uh, a, a topic and start researching the topic and I have ample experience, and I've, I've studied it for years, and, and might even, in my head at least, you might not think that way, but in my head, I might think I might, might be an expert in this area, you know? And, uh, but when I started getting into this, I started realizing, man, I, I need this. Like somebody needs to be preaching this to me, not me preaching it to anybody else, but uh, I find myself in that, in that dilemma, so it's been it's a good dilemma, really. It's been a, a great... Time of just preparation and getting ready to uh, getting getting ready to explore this this idea of emotions in this series that's what we've been doing is talking about our feelings and our emotions and there are many factors that that uh, that go into being able to deal with our feelings and emotions your you know your origin your your background, the family of origin your you know your demographics all that kind of stuff plays into it. We respond in different ways when it comes to our emotions and our feelings. Um, some of you, and so, like me, are more about emotional avoidance, right? We, we don't, we don't want to talk about our emotions, right? We don't want to go into our emotions because, well, we just don't want to live in that. We don't want to accept that as, as real, as true. We want to just kind of avoid talking about it. And maybe if we avoid talking about it, then it just goes away. We don't ever have to talk about it, right? And uh, so we might be about emotional avoidance, but the problem is with that is that there's probably a direct correlation between your emotional avoidance, and you're vacillating between, say, apathy and anger, right? Like you may be going back and forth in that. You may, you may be angry at times, and then at times you just, just don't care anymore. I just don't care. And, uh, but then you never talk to anybody about it. You never discuss this. You never go into it, you know, and there's probably a connection there. Others deal with emotions with emotional indulgence. We've talked about that last week. And that's where you feel your feelings. Okay, now let, me, let me qualify this. I'm glad that you are feeling something and that you're willing to talk about it. That, that's important. That's important that you're able to express how you feel. And so I'm glad about that. But when I talk about, when I talk about emotional indulgence, what I'm saying is that our feelings become like the GPS of our life. Like we make decisions in life based on how we feel. And what ends up happening is we make a decision that, you know, I feel this way, so I make this decision right now, and then say six months later, I feel this way, and then I'm looking back at that decision I made six months ago, I'm saying, why did I do that? Why did I? Why did I well, I did it because I felt that way at that time, but now I'm making this decision based on how I feel. And sometimes in life, there are, des- there are th- ways that we feel but they aren't necessarily true. They aren't necessarily right. Like I may feel so angry at my kids that I wanna punch a hole in the wall. I feel that, but it's not right. And it's gonna be expensive and I may break my hand in doing it and on and on and on, right? And so there are feelings that we feel, I'm glad you feel them, but then it's not always, it's it's not always right to act on those feelings and to make decisions based on those feelings. So in this series, what we're doing is we're trying to get a biblical understanding of how we are to manage our emotions and our feelings. How are we to navigate our emotions and our feelings? And so uh, last week, I talked about our emotions kind of like a vehicle, right? So I have this image here of a, of a road sign. You get, you, you get into whatever emotion it might be, anger, or stress, uh, shame, apathy, whatever it is, you get into that emotion and it's like getting crawling into a vehicle and that emotion is going to take you somewhere. It's going to take you towards, you know, isolation and depression. It's going to take you towards freedom and, and forgiveness. And so what we've been talking about is that, that emotions, really God has given us these emotions and what God wants to do more than anything else is redeem those emotions. He wants to help you. He wants to help you As you live through those things to actually find freedom and wholeness in your life. And that's really why these emotions exist in our life. And so, um, today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about an emotion that I I hope I've been praying and I've been asking the Holy Spirit to just open up our hearts and our minds to it because it's something that I think is very critical in our society today. And we're going to talk about the emotion of shame. 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 There's some of you right now, you might be listening, and you say, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. There's others of you, you just tensed up in your seat and you're like, I don't really want to go there. Shame. And the question for us, as we are talking about the vehicle of shame is where is this emotion leading you to? Is it leading you down a path of isolation, a path of hiddenness, a path of secrecy? Or is it taking you to a place of grace, freedom, deeper connection and community? Where is this place, where is this vehicle taking you, this emotion? I started trying to think about, you know, what what would, what kind of vehicle would illustrate um, the idea of shame, you know? And so I, as I'm thinking about this, like, like actual vehicles, you, some of you are old enough to remember this, remember the 1980s when Chrysler experimented with the The K car, the Reliant car, you know, Um, it was like this really bad experiment. And I'm, you know, I I was worried about saying this because I thought there might be people that actually loved their K car. I don't know, but it was just a couple of years and it was just like this experiment from Chrysler on like how to how fast can a vehicle break down, you know? That was the experiment. <laughs> and so this this Reliant K car, but I never owned one, so that wouldn't be one that I would use. And so for us, our family and particularly our daughter, the vehicle of shame was our 1997 Chevy van. I have a a picture of it, but I have a half picture of it because the the reality is if you go through my photos, you'll find You'll find a a nice posed photograph of my Harley. You'll find a nice picture of my truck. You might find a picture of a car that I wish I had like a 65 GTO or something like that. But if I look through all of our albums looking for pictures of of my 1997 Chevy van, it's always like this. They're always like in the background somewhere. Like I don't really want to show off the 97 Chevy van. So in this picture, this is my son Gabe, my youngest son and. Our motorcycles we were out riding in the desert in California. And, uh, and there's my van, my 97 van of shame. This was particularly the van of shame for my daughter, Caitlin, who's now an adult in, in the Air Force. But my daughter, Caitlin, she, uh, she, she you know, this before cell phone, she would actually go to the, off, the school office to call me. Like she no cell phone. she'd go to the school office and ask and call, call my call, I need to call my dad, call me and say, dad, are you picking me up today? And I'd say, yes. And she'd, are you driving the van? <laughs> That's what she would ask me. Are you driving the van? I'm like, I might be. She's like, don't drive the van. Drive your truck. Don't drive the van. Drive the truck, you know. I'm like, I'm sorry. I, and if by chance I had to take the van to pick her up, she'd be like, don't, don't park in the front of the school. I don't want you being in there. Park. Go back to the corner of the parking lot do not I don't want anybody anybody watching me get into that van that was the van of shame for my daughter in her mind that 97 Chevy van belonged you know it should never be out in the light should never be in front of anybody should never be seen and this is what shame does shame leads to secrecy it leads to hiddenness. It leads to silence. And this is how it's been from the very beginning with Adam and Eve. You know, the story of Adam and Eve. Sin enters into the garden. You have Adam and Eve, the, you know, the first humans created by God. Designed in the image of God, but sin enters into the garden. Sin comes on the scene, and the first thing they feel is shame. And what do they do? They cover themselves. They hide it. I mean, we know they were hiding from God, but, but the very first thing they do is they hide from each other. This is what they're doing. Their covenant says they were, they were husband and wife, naked and unashamed. And then sin enters in, and now they're husband and wife, naked and ashamed of it. And so they hide. And the reason they hide is because shame destroys intimacy. Shame destroys intimacy. Destroys intimacy between you and God, between us and God, and it destroys intimacy between you and other people around you. That's what shame does. So where you have secrets and you have silence, you don't have intimacy. Where things are kept in the dark, where, where you're withholding things, where, where there are parts of you that nobody knows, there's isolation and not intimacy. And there are some of you that that is killing you right now. There's some of you watching online, that's killing you right now. The hiddenness, the shame, the the isolation. See, it destroys intimacy, intimacy between one another, but it also destroys our intimacy between us and God. And so, what I want to do is, I want to look at a Psalm today, Psalm 32. I want us to read together this Psalm. It's a Psalm of David, and David in this Psalm talks he talks about how he deal how he, how he dealt with shame, uh, specifically. The, the weight of that shame, the burden of that shame, but also he talks about the freedom from shame in this psalm, and so we're going to look at this, but this psalm, the context of this psalm is directly related to second Samuel chapter 11. It's the story of, of David and Bathsheba and the sin, well, the adultery of David and Bathsheba. Of David and Bathsheba. You know the story a bit. David, or maybe you don't know the story, I'll just tell you real quickly. Basically, uh, start, that chapter starts off, it says, in the, in the season and the time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. David is the king of Israel. In a time when kings were off at war, David stayed behind. The very next scene is David on the, on the top of the palace, on the palace roof, looking over the edge of the palace roof and he sees this beautiful lady taking a bath. Her name is Bathsheba. He asked one of his servants, hey, who is she? I'd like to know who she is. And the servants say, well, that's, that's Bathsheba. But that's not all they say. They say, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That's who she is, king. Like, you know Uriah the Hittite. He is one of your, your warriors. He's one of your soldiers. You have shed blood on the battlefield with Uriah the Hittite. So if you're asking who she is, king, she is his wife. And still David says, hey, um, go get her for me. I don't know what he was thinking at that moment. I'm not sure what what was going through his head. Maybe he wasn't thinking at all. Maybe he thinks he's stronger than what he really is. But they go and they bring her, and you know the rest of the story. David has this affair with Bathsheba. And, but he convinces himself that nobody's going to find out. After all, he's the king. He can tell her on, on, on penalty of death, you've got to keep this silent. He could tell her that. And so he convinces himself nobody's going to find out. But then a couple weeks later, Bathsheba says, hey, uh, by the way, I'm pregnant. So the plot thickens. And now King David is trying to figure out what do I do? He knows that her husband Uriah is out on the battlefront. He knows that he knows that there's that nobody will believe that it's his child. And so what does he do? He starts scheming and so he calls for Uriah to come back to Jerusalem and then Uriah comes back to Jerusalem and his hope is that Uriah will sleep with his wife and then everybody will know and believe that well that's Uriah, he's Uriah's baby, he after all, you know, he's he came back from the from the battle. He he was with his wife. And so Uriah comes back but Uriah is a righteous man and he's not going to sleep with his wife. He says to himself, how can I possibly do this when my my comrades in arms my 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 warrior friends are out there on the battlefront. there's no way that i can spend time with my wife when they are out there fighting and so what he ends up doing is he ends up sleeping at the palace gate entrance with the servants of, of, of king of the king of, of the king and so his david's plan doesn't work so david then again i, I don't know if you're noticing the the, pro, the progress of this it goes from from a simple glance, to an action, to a cover-up, to a bigger cover-up. And so then David goes even further. This time he says, he, he, tells, he calls Uriah in and says, I want you to go back to the battlefield. And I hear, here's this confidential letter, letter, give it to Joab, the commander. And so Uriah delivers this confidential letter to Joab, the commander. Joab opens it up and the letter says, Take Uriah, the person who just delivered the letter, take Uriah, put him on the on the front lines of the battle, in the fiercest part of the battle. And when the when the battle ensues, I want you to withdraw the soldiers so that Uriah gets killed. Uriah delivers his own death letter. And it's exactly what happens. And then David brings Bathsheba into the palace. He becomes one of his wives. About a year passes and, and he probably is starting to think maybe he got away with it. Nobody knows, but there is a person who knows. In fact, the very last verse of chapter eleven, Second 2 Samuel says that God was displeased with David. God knew. So God sends this prophet Nathan to confront David. Um, the prophet speaks to I mean, God speaks to the prophet to, to confront David and to challenge him on what has happened. We'll talk a little bit more about that story in a second, but when David is confronted, the first thing he does, he just, he repents. When he's confronted with his sin, he confesses his sin, he comes clean, he repents, and then he writes this psalm that we're about to read, Psalm 32, okay? So this is immediately after the confrontation with Nathan. David now writes, he goes, verse 32, chapter 32, verse one blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered he here david is using emotion words okay he uses the word blessed here uh, maybe for our purposes happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven so he's using emotional words here. He's saying, hey, I'm happy. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Happy is the one whose sins the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there's no deceit. You see how David is talking about his emotions here, and he's saying, I am happy. Why? Why am I happy? Because I have been forgiven. The forgiveness actually brings joy and happiness into someone's life. He uses the word transgression here. It's a strong word. Strong sin word. It's this idea of a crime or stepping over a known boundary. And so I don't want you to miss it. It's important. When David talks about his shame, when David starts talking about his shame, he starts talking about his sin. We'll get to that, to a little bit how we often talk about our shame. But when David starts talking about his shame, he begins by telling us about his sin. He doesn't say slip up, he says sin. He doesn't say indiscretion. He says it was a transgression. I sinned. I know that when I talk about shame, it can be pretty nuanced. That there's all kinds of shame, you know. There's the shame that David is doing here, but then there's also shame that was done against you. Like you were a victim, and you were hurt, you were injured, and that has produced shame inside of you, and you're living with that shame. And I'm very sorry for that, I'm sorry that that you've had to experience that. It's unfair, it was not right, it should have never happened. Shame doesn't care how you became where you're at though. Shame still manifests itself in the same way and it pulls you down in the same way. And so in this case, David is talking about something he did, not something that was done to him, but rather something he did, and he calls it what it is, it was a sin. It was sin. It was a transgression. And language matters here. It was sin. You know, I read an article this week from um, the Christian Post. Where it was talking about uh, the Oxford Junior Dictionary. So It's a dictionary. It's actually the most common dictionary we use in, in, in the Western world. But the Oxford Junior Dictionary, um, a few years back, made a decision to, to take out uh, certain Christian words from the, from the dictionary. So they're not in there anymore. You cannot find them in there anymore. And the reason the rationality did that is because they said they're no longer relevant for younger people. That's what that was the rationale. So these this diction, these, these words were taken out of the dictionary because they're no longer relevant for younger people. And one of those words is the word sin. And there's a sense in which this is true, right? We don't talk about sin anymore. And and I'm not one of those fire brimstone. I just want to beat you over the head with sin. That's not what I'm talking about. But what we have done is we've replaced it with with a, you know just in, it's a slip up it's an indiscretion. We're trying to not produce shame, so let's not. We think we think that if we could just not talk about sin, then you won't feel shame. If we can normalize the behavior, we can say, hey, it's just it's no big deal. Then maybe you won't feel shame. If we just simply say, hey. It's not a sin, it's just, you know, it's just whatever, just, it's okay. Pat you on the back a little bit that you won't feel shame, but the truth is that we have done that. In fact, our culture continues to do that, to essentially take things out of, out of our understanding of what the Bible teaches as sin. We're making it just normal stuff, and yet shame is at an all-time high. People still feel shame. It doesn't really work to try to normalize it. It doesn't really work to try to, to excuse it. It doesn't work to, make it, to not make it a big deal. Oh, yeah, what you did, it's no big deal, man. Everybody's doing it. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. People are still feeling the weight of shame. It's a sin. And so the starting point of freedom is calling sin, sin. It's not a slip-up. It's not a trip-up. It's not a misunderstanding. It's not an indiscretion. It's not a lapse in judgment. It's sin. And so after his affair, more than a year passes, and David thinks that, he can, that if he destroys the evidence, then, then maybe nobody will ever find out, right? He's under this assumption that the worst thing that can happen to him is for somebody to find out, that that's the worst, and that's the lie of shame, That if somebody finds out, my life comes to an end. But really, the worst thing that could possibly happen is that you live your entire life and nobody finds out. And you die a respectable fraud, never having experienced the grace and love of Jesus Christ in your life. That's really the worst thing that can possibly happen. Not that the shame gets discovered. David tries to hide his secret. And how does he hide it? By doing more shameful things. Like he committed adultery and he wants to cover up the adultery. You don't cover it up with nice things, you cover it up with murder. That's how shame works, that's the strange thing about shame. That when we keep it hidden, when we keep it, you know, in the darkness, that the deeper we go into shame. Shame seems to compound itself the more we hide it. So we're so concerned about someone finding out. We're so concerned about being discovered. We're so concerned about that. And you know what? The truth is that shame doesn't care if somebody else knows about your sin. Shame only cares that you know about it and that you live under the weight of that, that shame, that knowledge. David describes this this weight that he feels in verse three. He says, when I kept silent, in other words, when I hid it, When I covered it up, when I thought nobody knew, when I thought I was free and clear, this is what David says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. I didn't get away with it. Maybe nobody knew, but I didn't get away with it. I still suffered because of it. I suffered physically over it. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as as in the heat of summer. So he's living with the shame, and it's isolating him from God, and it's isolating him from others as well. But it's isolating him from God. When I was a teenager, living uh, in the country of Panama, my so I lived in a neighborhood called Nueva California, uh, translated New California, and uh, but it was a small neighborhood, and so we didn't actually have a grocery store or any sh- kind of shopping center in our neighborhood. We would have to go outside of our neighborhood, about a mile away, to go to a, sh- a store to buy, an, you know groceries and that kind of stuff. And so, in, in cases like that, when there were these neighborhoods like that, there was always some house, some, some person in the neighborhood who had a house where they had decided they are going to just buy some goods and they would sell it from the house. they mark it up a little bit, you know, and then you would be able, instead of going all the way to the store, which back then you would have to walk to the store, instead of going all the way to the store, you would actually go to their house and buy, you know, A pound of flour, uh, ice cold drinks, you know, soap, cigarettes, you know, just a variety of little things. They would have that. So we had one right around the corner from my house. Uh, It was a lady by the name of Doña Marta, and Doña Marta, she, um, she, she was an, an older lady, nice lady, you know, and she, she had this little store. Uh, I often would go there with my friends and we'd get an ice cold Coke and and some cookies, some galletas, and we'd sit down and we'd just have, you know, we'd kind of relax after having played basketball or soccer or whatever. Doña Marta was was an older lady, and so she was, um, you know, getting forgetful, and so she would often say, she'd often say, hey, did you guys pay for that already? She'd ask the question, did you guys pay for that already? You know, and we'd pull out the money and pay for it. One day, I bought a Coke and... Some cookies, and I—you know—it was twenty-five cents, ten cents for the coke, fifteen cents for the cookies. That's all it was. Early seventies, and I—I um, uh, I bought this coke and cookies, and you know, I'm sitting there drinking my coke up, and I reach into my pocket, and I realized I didn't have a quarter in my pocket to pay for it. And so I'm going through this stuff in my head: How am I going to? You know, what I do, do, do I tell her, I, I, you know, can I just pay you later? I, I didn't, you know, it was for me, honestly, back then it was hard for me to, to it was hard for me to come by a quarter. I, I, didn't, I didn't have a job and, you know, a quarter, literally, just to give you a little bit of perspective, 25 cents was a round trip fare on a bus from where I lived all the way to downtown Panama City and back. So that was actually a lot of money, 25 cents, and I didn't have that available money. And so I'm trying to tell myself, how do I, what do I do? What do I tell her? And she walks up to me, and she says, hey, Ricky, did you, did, did you pay, for, pay for that already? And before I, I could even think, I said, yes, remember, uh, you, were, you walked out, the, you know, the dog was over there, bar- I came up with this whole story, this narrative of how I actually, when I, it was a lie, it was a fabrication, completely. And she's like, oh, okay, I'm sorry, it must have slipped my mind. And she went away. I know, what a jerk I was. I know, I get it. I felt horrible. I went home that afternoon and that night was lying in bed, just running through my head. I can't believe I lied to Doña Marta. I can't believe I didn't pay for that. In my head I would tell her, maybe I'll I'll just go and and, and tell her, I'm sorry, I, I, I lied to you, here's, here's the quarter, but I couldn't come up with a quarter. The only way I had a quarter was, just, was stealing it from. So you see how things get compounded. I, I would have to steal it from my mom's purse to be able to pay for, the, <laughs> pay for the indiscretion, right? And so I'm going through this and the embarrassment of it. And so you know what ends up happening? I never went back. I never told her. I never paid for the, for the Coke and, and cookies. I never did. And you know what else? I never went back there. The power of twenty-five cents and shame. I lived there for several more years. I never went back. My friends said, "Hey, you want to go get a coke and some cookies?" Nah, 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 that's okay. I would literally, when I wanted an ice cold drink, I would literally walk a mile to a store. We called it La Tienda del Chino. It's a Chinese store. (laughs) We'd walk a mile. I'd walk a mile to the store to get a cold drink instead of walking just right around the block to get a cold drink because I couldn't bear. Seeing her face. That's what shame does. And I think that, that that what happened to me and Doña Marta is also what happens to a lot of you, a lot of people who it's the reason why they don't want to come to church because they feel like they're reminded of it. <laughs> Feels like there's you know, they don't want to have they don't want anybody talking to them about their problems. They don't want to talk about that, they don't want to go there. It's better just to, you know, for it to just be normal, you know, not, to not have to go there, to not have to get into, that, into those topics. They'd much rather be around people who just affirm them and say, hey, you're fine, everything's okay. And so instead, you end up coming to a place like this and, and meeting people like me, which can make you feel shame. David had isolated himself from God and from others and he was feeling the physical effects of it he was also it was also beginning to affect him relationally. In fact, in fact, here's the deal. If you're if if shame is something that you might be dealing with, here's some questions you should ask yourself. Number 1, have you been avoiding certain people? Have you been avoiding certain people in your life? Like do you stay away, you know, there are certain people that you steer clear from because you don't want to be reminded of the shame. Like I know a family, a a, a a a woman who will not see her kids because she's so she's so embarrassed and so ashamed of her divorce, or somebody who struggles with this sense of failure, and and anytime they see anybody in authority, they feel like they're a failure, so they just basically avoid anybody in authority, anybody doesn't matter. And the fact is that probably what they need more than anything else is to link up to people who can love on them and care, people who are in authority who can love on them and care for them. That might be the most healthiest healthiest thing they can do. Instead, shame drives them in a different direction. Second question we could ask ourselves is, have you been defensive lately? Shame tends to keep us on edge and defensive. Another question we can ask ourselves is, do you have a tendency to be critical of others? When, when we feel shame, it's, it's easy to play the blame game. And some of you are pros at it. Like, like you've managed to reverse engineer all of your problems, and you've figured out how to basically shift the blame somewhere else. And all of this is happening to me because of that person or because of that person, and if they just didn't do this, if they just, then maybe I would be okay, and we manage to feel better about ourselves by basically dumping all the blame on someone else, right? Well, Prophet Nathan confronts David about his sin, and he tells him this story, this parable. Now, David doesn't know it's a parable. He doesn't know there's a, it's a story. He thinks it's true. He says that there's uh, this wealthy man in the kingdom who has all kinds of sheep. He's very wealthy. He has sheep. And then there's this poor man who's right next door to him. who He's very poor, and he only has one little sheep. One, just one. And king, can you believe it? The wealthy man took the one little sheep from this poor man, barbecued it, and fed his friends friends and family with it. King, what do we do about that guy? And you read the story, David rises up in anger, and he says, he shall be put to death. And then Nathan says, you're the man. And it wasn't sheep, it was another person's wife. And then immediately David is overcome with repentance and confession. He grieves his sin and what he's done. And he begins to own his sin. And that's really the beginning of freedom, guys, is owning your part, owning your sin, What's interesting here is that David is specifically harsh on this guy, right? Like this guy took a sheep and he should be put to death. And David, what he did was so much worse, right? That's kind of what shame does. We feel better by exposing other people's shame. We feel better by exposing other people's sin. We feel better by exposing other people's guilt to try to minimize ours. We We don't think about ours that way, right? Verse, uh, verse 5 of chapter 32, David confesses, he says, I acknowledge my sin, I acknowledge my sin to you, and, I did, and did not cover up my iniquity. I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge my sin. Too often, if we were writing this Bible, we would say, and I acknowledge their sin. I acknowledge what they did. You know, if they, if they just hadn't done all of this stuff, then maybe things wouldn't be so bad. David says, I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge my sin and my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And this is what you do. See, the message right now, what I'm, when I'm preaching right now, I'm not trying to tell you, I'm not trying to say, don't feel shame. If you feel shame, I'm not saying, don't feel shame. No, you feel that, I get it. Whether it was done to you or whether it was something you did, you feel the shame, that's true. The message today is actually confess that you feel the shame. Confess the sin, bring it into the light, right? See, David goes from not talking about it to acknowledging. it. He goes from suppressing it to confessing it. And that's not easy to do, by the way, guys. So if you're here right now, and you don't sleep well at night because of guilt and shame, and you hear Pastor Rich say, hey, you know what? You need to confess it. You need to acknowledge it. I understand that that's easier said than done. I get that. I totally get that. But I also want to say to you that there is no other way towards freedom and hope and peace and joy in fact, this is what David says here, the latter part of verse five. He says, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I, I think we grew up in church and we heard, we, we heard G- that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, right? Theologically, we, we processed that. And yes, I went up to the altar one day and I knelt down and I gave my life to Jesus and he forgave me my sins. Praise God. But somehow or another, we skipped over the fact that he also forgave the guilt of our sins. We don't talk about him forgiving the guilt of our sins. And so too often, religion has used us to manipulate people. That, yeah, you did this. Yeah, God has forgiven you. But you know what? You're going to pay the price. You need to carry that weight around. Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, just stop feeling that way. You know, a mental assent. Jesus forgave you. you. Just don't feel that way anymore. And we skip over the fact that actually the guilt of our sin has been forgiven. The gospel isn't just that Jesus has forgiven your sin, but He's also forgiven your guilt. He's also forgiven your guilt. Jesus doesn't just take our sins upon Himself on the cross, He takes our guilt, our shame upon Himself at the cross. So I want us to be very clear. Jesus, yes, Jesus forgives your sins. But in forgiving your sins, he also liberates you from the effects of your sin. Some of you need to hear that. Because you said up here, yes, I know you forgive me, Jesus, but then you walk around weighted down all day long thinking that you have to carry this weight, you have to carry this guilt. And Jesus wants you to be free from that. He forgives your sins, but he also forgives and liberates you from the effects of sin of that sin. He uses that word forgiven, which means literally to lift a heavy burden and carry it away. And I believe that that's what God wants to do in this room right now. He wants to lift some burdens. He wants to forgive. He wants to carry the weights. And right now you walked in here and you feel burdened. You feel weighted down. And Jesus wants to lift that weight. Verse 11 says, rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. So when he lifts the weight, you can rejoice in the Lord and be glad. Sing all you who are upright in heart. This is where joy comes from, right? You see, this vehicle of shame, it can either take you to a place of depression, it can take you to a place of isolation, it can take you to a place of hiddenness, or it can take you to a place of freedom and forgiveness and joy. What we need to do is just invite Jesus into it, right? I think some of you today you rolled in in that 97 van of shame. And it's not in a parking lot anywhere. Nobody saw you because you but you parked a block away because you didn't want anybody to see it. I know I'm using figurative language. You're probably thinking, what are you talking about, Rich? I don't even own a 97 van, right? What I mean is it's too easy sometimes for us to walk into church, put on the makeup put on the pretend, put on all the, you know, hey, I'm good, everything's great, you know, but man, you're just weighted down with shame and you don't want anybody to know that you drove in that 97 minivan of shame. You don't want anybody to know that. Here's what I'd tell you is that Jesus would say to you right now, hey, Rich, I'll drive that van. I'll drive it. And I'll take you to the cross. I'll take you to a place of freedom and forgiveness. You don't have to live in hiddenness anymore. You don't have to live in secrecy anymore. I want to set you free. In verse 6, I want to end with this. He says, therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. There's a sense in which if you're dealing with shame, your time is kind of limited. Shame has a way of drowning you in secrets and silence. It's such self-preservation that you just, you you bury it and you bury it and you bury it and you bury it and you bury it until finally you just, all that, Nasty landfill starts growing some green grass, and you think, Oh, look at this beautiful green grass I have here. And you forget that there's all kinds of garbage beneath it. And time's limited. David says that they may find you while you may be found. And that's what we want to do here in the next few minutes. Let's all stand. I'm. I'm convinced, and I say this first. Let me just so you hear my heart on this, guys. I've battled my own, my own shame. I grew up in an abusive home, a father who didn't really was never present, an alcoholic, a father who I watched physically watched him beat my mother up. I saw that, I witnessed it. I have a broken, I have a scar on my nose because I jumped in between them once because I didn't want him to hit my mom anymore. I went, I remember when they divorced, my, my dad sat me in a bar, took me to a bar, I was 14 years old. He took me to a bar in the morning, like 10 o'clock in the morning, I didn't even know bars were open at 10 o'clock in the morning. But took me to a bar, sat me down and said, hey, Ricky, your mom and I are getting a divorce. And I started crying, and he, he told me, and used colorful language, shut up, don't cry. And then he said, I just want you to know it's your fault. And what's wild about that. It wasn't my fault. I mean, I was just a kid. It wasn't my fault. But I carried that. And I carried that, and I would walk around with this idea that somehow or another, I, I, I didn't say, I knew I intellectually, I knew I wasn't responsible for the divorce, but somehow or another, there was something wrong with me. There was something faulty in me. Those prophetic words were spoken over me, and I just carried that. And it wasn't until I understood that Jesus doesn't just forgive our sin, but he forgives the guilt of our sin. He takes the shame away. And I began to really realize, man, I don't have to live under that weight and that heaviness anymore. I can be free. And my prayer for all of us in this room, because I know that there are some of you in this room, that you're, you've been carrying a weight. Man, you've been carrying a weight. You don't like it. It's made you unhealthy, not just, not just spiritually, but maybe physically as well. You're carrying that. You don't want to be there anymore. You want to be free from that. And I just want to say to you that it starts with Jesus Christ. It starts with, it starts with coming to him saying, here I am. And so I don't know. We're not we're not doing we're not inviting people up to the front because of COVID and all that stuff. But here the takeaway. Here's what I think that needs to happen. I'm use some figurative language here, but you understand what I'm saying. Here's what I think needs to happen. We need to come to terms with the fact that I have shame in my life, and I'm carrying this weight, and I'm hiding things, and there's a lot of hiddenness going on. And then stop and confess that to God and say, God, I, I, I'm, I'm driving. This vehicle right now, but I don't want to drive it anymore. I want you to drive it. I'm, I'm scared. I'm scared of where you're going to take me. I'm scared of what it means for me to open up my heart this way. I'm scared about the people that I might have to talk to and confront, the people that I might have to confess to. That scares me, but God, I want you to take the wheel. And then, like we said last week, I want you to go to the back doors, and I want you to open a couple back doors up and invite not, not the whole congregation, invite a couple friends, people that are close, people that love you, people that care for you, people that will support you and stand with you and walk with you and and will do anything for you. Invite them in as well and say, hey, will you ride in this shameful vehicle that I'm in? (laughs) And if we do that, we start going down a path of freedom, of deliverance of true joy. You know what I want more than anything else for all of us? I do this now. I wake up in the morning. When I wake up in the morning and I open up my eyes and I start walk, I'm light. I'm free. I'm not worried about things in the closet or things hidden. And it's not because rich is special. It's because Jesus is driving these feelings of mine. And that's what I want for you more than anything else. Amen? I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to challenge you to leave this place, put, put Jesus in the driver's seat of your life, and invite a couple friends, close friends. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you, God, for your goodness, your grace, your loving kindness. Father, today we have talked about a heavy subject, Lord, maybe particularly for those who may be experiencing shame this morning who may say of themselves that there's something inherently wrong with them, that they are to blame of whatever dysfunction, whatever brokenness is in their life, and the enemy is just pounding it on them and pounding it on them and pounding, it on, them, and pounding it on them, and they walk around with this heaviness. They walk around with this weight. Father, you love them. You love them so much that you gave your life on the cross, not just simply to, in a theological way, forgive their sins, but you died on the cross so that, in a practical way, they no longer have to carry the guilt and the effects of that sin in their life. And so, right now, Father, will you do that for each and every one? Father, we confess as a body. We confess our sins. We confess our failures. We confess our weaknesses. We ask you, God, to take over our lives. And Father, help us to confide in one or two people that that can walk this journey with us towards freedom and deliverance. And I thank you, Father, for what you're gonna do in all of our lives, in Jesus' name.